This episode is brought to you by Sheath. You can go to sheathunderwear.com and discover the most comfortable underwear ever created. Now, what makes sheath underwear different? Well, for men, on the inside of the underwear, there is a dual pouch. That means separate compartments for your manhood. Imagine a silky, smooth pouch on the inside that your boys slide right into that keeps you separate from your legs so there's no more sticking, no more chafing, no more need for readjustment. We all know that little move you have to make to kind of peel the bad boys off of the leg. Well, with sheath, that is a thing of the past. There are several fabrics to choose from, from modal to bamboo. My personal favorite is the bamboo. It's a newly launched product that everyone seems to really love. I highly recommend trying the bamboo sheath underwear if you have not ever given yourself the gift of true comfort. Wearing these underwear truly sets a new precedent for what underwear are and for most people, I think they end up switching entirely over to sheath because when you put on your old underwear after trying these, they just don't cut it anymore. You can try sheath risk-free. There is a 100% money-back guarantee on your first pair. So go to sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. I've been involved with Sheath since its conception. It was founded by my brother, Robert Patton, who is a US military vet, who during the course of his two tours to Iraq developed this product out of need. Need is the mother of invention, as he likes to say, and he did a great job bringing this awesome product to the world. Again, that's sheathunderwear.com promo code TIMEWHEEL. This episode is also brought to you by Ohana Kava Bar. Go to ohanakavabar.com and check out their selection. Ohana means family and it is spelled O-H-A-N-A and Kava is spelled K-A-V-A. You can order directly from their website and they will mail you high quality kava. If you don't already know, kava is a plant medicine, an herbal supplement, a replacement for alcohol. It is an incredible experience. I have used kava for years now. I love it. It makes you chill, happy, vibey. It is a communal and ceremonial beverage to unwind with at the end of your day. If you haven't given kava a try, I highly recommend it. Again, go to ohanakavabar.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 10%. Their store offers classic kava, instant kava, kava tinctures, kava capsules, and more. All of which I have tried and all work incredibly well. ohanakavabar.com Promo code TIMEWHEEL.
Greetings. Accessing archive. Authorizing. Access granted. Accessing file. How's it going, Eric? Man, I've had an interesting couple of weeks, but it feels good to be on this podcast and to connect with someone who apparently has always been close in the periphery of Indra's net, and now we're actually finally reflecting at each other, so it should be good. (laughs) Absolutely, brother. Um, Yeah, I've been a big fan of your work uh, ever since I started listening to some of your podcasts with Aubrey, and then I dived into your podcast, The Myths That Make Us. And I have just, you know, really found your uh, way of thinking and bringing to light a lot of things that happen in the psyche of humans, just like among the most profound work that, that I've ever researched or been privy to listening to so you're doing amazing stuff i just want to say thank you thank you and that means a lot because it feels like the people who interact with my work they either react to it like you do or they do not fucking know what i'm talking about (laughs) and so it feels good to uh, be in the presence of someone that gets it because this is what Mm -hmm. i'm obsessed with absolutely i think the thing that maybe binds the people that understand where you're coming from is interest in psychology, interest in psychedelics, interest in spirituality and mind expansion and just general, what is the nature of consciousness? Right. And these questions for me were in the super back burner for, you know, my first 20 years. And then somewhere along the lines of years 18 to 22, I really started exploring my consciousness first through, you know, cannabis and then salvia and magic mushrooms and LSD and DMT. And things just kind of evolved as I went on this kind of uh, this journey of self-discovery because, you know, that first kind of taste that you get of the psychedelic worldview, it's so hard to just close that book and, and not be interested. I know that some people certainly maybe have a psychedelic experience and they're like, huh, not for me. But for me, that was the most interesting thing that I, I had ever been through, ever witnessed. Um, is, is that, does that resonate with you? Was it psychedelics that maybe opened you up to all of this psychology, this world of psychology and spirituality and stuff that you, that you are so involved in? Yeah, what's interesting is the root of my interest in psychology stems from my mom's depression as a child. Mm -hmm. Um, I had the type of relationship with my mom where I felt, you know, as a child that I was responsible for her mental and her emotional well-being, uh, which is clearly not the way that (laughs) it should be, but it is the way that it was. And whenever she would Whenever she wasn't having a episode, I felt like I was, you know, the prince of the universe and Mm -hmm. that the goddess of the universe herself loved me completely. And then when she would have a depressive episode, she would be in her room for a couple of days or an entire weekend, or Mm -hmm. she'd be crying in the kitchen table or something like that. And, you know, as a five-year-old, it would feel like uh, I have fundamentally failed 
the universe itself is broken and sad. And that kind of kicked off my interest in like, how could both of these things be emanating from the same creature? And my mom tells a story that whenever I would come home in like second and third grade, I would sit her down at the kitchen table and I would start to describe the behaviors of all the kids like at recess or in class. And then I would ask my mom, like, why were they acting that way? Um, you know, so the seeds were set early, but what led me to really exploring psychology to the depth that I've got to it now Mm -hmm. was actually trying to find God. And so when I was, I think seven, uh, my parents were both raised Catholic and it was a very like nonchalant, like we're doing it because our parents did it. Uh, type of Catholicism and my mom had me go to church and I went to one church Sunday service came home had a bunch of fucking questions for my mom and she was like you don't have to go anymore man and I Mm -hmm. think I was like uh, six or seven and somebody eventually explained to me what heaven was and they said that heaven was a place that if you're good um, you get to be with the people that you love forever And, uh, I remember that night I tried to comprehend, I really tried to feel what forever meant. Mm -hmm. And, um, it ended up being like the most traumatic experience I had as a kid because for the next like 10 nights, every night I would try to imagine eternity and it would make me start to weep because of the feeling of the best possible way that consciousness can play out. You know, I didn't have the language back then for that, but the mm-hmm. feeling was the best way this can play out is I have to be something forever. Mm-hmm. And I just kept imagining like waking up again and again and again. And uh, I would pray each night to the God that I felt was sentencing me to this mm-hmm. to help me forget so I could fall asleep. And, um, after about 10 days, it just kind of faded off into the background. And then for the next 15 years, I was the loudest atheist in any room. Mm -hmm. I was the loudest atheist at every table. Um, but I was always praying every night I would pray. And my prayer was always this feeling of whatever is out there. Uh, it's rude for me to ask anything of it. So I'm just Mm going to tell it what I'm grateful for. And then I went and got a degree in cognitive psychology. uh, And my first year at college, I found Carl Jung. Okay. And the moment I found Carl Jung, I found someone who could rationalistically connect me to spirituality. And I realized that that is what I had been searching for. And then that got me into psychedelics. And then psychedelics got me way more deeper weaved into psychology, which then... And like a self-recursive loop got me interested into philosophy, mm-hmm. specifically pragmatic philosophy, which has a lot to do with perception. And then phenomenology, which is all about perception and the nature of consciousness. And then getting into the biology that explains like the archetypes for Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. And then getting into dreams, which is a whole motherfucking thing. <laughs> and so for me, it was my mom's depression and trying to understand God. So it, that is so interesting how you got into philosophy um, 
kind of through this different angle and then the psychedelics embellished and and kind of uh, opened up that world to maybe a more tangible way of perceiving what the teachings are in psychology and stuff. And you had mentioned Jung, and I would just like to introduce my listeners to, you know, who is Jung? How would you kind of describe him? How would you introduce him and his body of work? So Carl Jung is one of the most influential psychologists in Western culture. Um, He was a peer of Freud. Uh, He was probably about 20 years younger than Freud. And uh, he is the psychologist that came up with the terms introvert and extrovert, synchronicity, uh, the collective unconscious. Um, He has a radically different understanding of dreams as to compared to Freud. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, he is the most... So, like, when it comes to psychology, uh, if you aren't willing to explore altered states of consciousness, but you call yourself a psychologist, it would be like being a botanist, but never actually planting a plant, is Mm -hmm. how I feel about it. And Carl Jung reportedly did peyote when he Mm -hmm. came to America and he visited a shaman in Taos, uh, New Mexico. Um, But, so, I'll kind of give people kind of a a brief life story of Carl Jung, because he's one of the most interesting humans that I've ever, I mean, he's he's my favorite human. If I could talk to anyone (laughs) from history, it would be Carl Jung. But, Mm -hmm. um, so he was born in Switzerland, uh, in Zurich specifically, and to get his doctorates, or to get his physician's license, the paper he wrote was on seances. And he psychologically broke down seances and he sat in on a bunch of seances. And, uh, when he became a doctor, he worked at basically the most famous mental hospital in that part of Europe. Uh, I can't pronounce it, but it starts with a B it's like Bergen Holsey or something. And he first created the association test, which is one of the classic tests that we use to study subconscious and unconscious and non-conscious aspects of the psyche um and he got so good at using the association test and essentially what you do is you create a list of like 100 words and Mm -hmm. the first like 10 or 20 words are really basic words and you time how long it takes for someone to say whatever the first thing is that pops into their mind in association with that word and you also measure their uh sweat response on their hand and he got so good at this that he could detect thieves, people who were cheating, uh, people who were withholding like business information or about to do stuff like that. And then he eventually started working with schizophrenics. And back then, schizophrenia w- was called dementia praecox. And he eventually got noticed by Freud. <clears throat> well, uh, Freud released... Uh, the interpretation of dreams in 1900 and Jung read that and was like, Oh my God, this is really amazing stuff. Cause Freud is essentially the person who brought the idea of the unconscious mind to Western culture, which is now so ubiquitous. But back then it was a revolution. Um, mm-hmm. interesting side notes, Salvador Dali used Freud's uh, dream interpretation technique to make most of his paintings. But 
That's oh, an wow. interesting side note. That's very cool. Jung started to work with Freud, and he was kind of dubbed the heir apparent to psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis was this revolutionary thing in Freud's time where it was this idea that you could just talk to people, and allowing people to talk would heal them of a lot of their psychoses. Um, okay. And Freud's big thing is he thought that most of the disorders that happen in the psyche are the byproduct of sexual dysfunction. Ooh, interesting. And when Jung was in his mid-30s, he wrote a book called Libido and Its Transformations, and it essentially disagreed with Freud about what he thought libido was, which is like the primary energy in the psyche. And he thought that uh, it's not just sexual, that it's also spiritual, that there's a spiritual mm -hmm. component to humans that's seeking to transform you, and that <clears throat> it's not just about sex. And then they ended up like having this big falling out, and there's actually a book online that you can buy on Amazon called uh, The Freud and Jung Letters. And you can actually read the letters that they exchanged and like how they broke up. And it's funny to read like the oh, two wow. titans of psychology kind of acting like high schoolers. But, <laughs> and this is what most people don't know. And this is the most interesting thing about Jung. When he wrote that book and he broke up with Freud, he entered a four-year psychosis where he wow. had hallucinations and heard voices almost every day. And he would do his work all day. And then at night, he would talk to the voices and he would do what's called active imagination and allow the visions to overtake him. And then he would paint them. And mm. he had these special books called the Black Books, which were these journals that he wrote down all these dialogues with these voices in his head. And then he made this thing called the Red Book, which he only showed a couple of people in his lifetime. But it was this beautiful, huge book that he wrote out all the dialogues and painted amazing psychedelic visions of the hallucinations that he had over this four-year period. And then for the next 50 years, wow. every major scientific article and lecture that he gave came from him trying to scientifically articulate that four-year psychosis, and that all of the major psychological ideas that he is now known for came from this psychotic experience. Wow. And when you feel into that for a moment, he had a psychotic break before we had pharmaceutical interventions and the whole story that our culture has that if you have something like this, you need to take medication to numb it. He mm -hmm. chose to see it as there's a message from my unconscious that's trying to tell me something. And if I show up to it and I really try to understand it, maybe it's a treasure, maybe it's a gift. Mm. And then his ideas of introvert, extrovert, the four psychological types, which are feeling, thinking, sensation, and intuition, the idea of synchronicity, the idea of the shadow, which, is, which he came up with, the idea of the anima or the animus, <clears throat> the idea mm. of your soul being like a guide, like the higher self, um, and the collective unconscious, all of that came from this, what's called a creative illness. And mm -hmm. for the rest of his life, he tried to do that. Oh, and by the way, he was in an open relationship. He had a wife and then he had a mistress and they all knew about each other. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. So what is it that you have discovered that psychosis or schizophrenia is yeah so the core is it's complicated and <clears throat> we use the word schizophrenia but it's very likely a word that we use 
that is a combination of a bunch of different things. But Mm -hmm. the first thing to understand is um, your psyche, which is the word that he uses to explain everything that's going on psychologically, um, your conscious mind is only like 1% of the psyche. And then you have Mm -hmm. a subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind is anything that you could be conscious of right now, but currently aren't. And so an example of this is, is if I ask you, how does your shirt feel on your left shoulder right now? Like you can mm-hmm. feel that now, but before I said it, you, you weren't consciously aware of it. That's an right. example of the subconscious. And that makes okay. up like 9% of your psyche. But like 90% of what is happening is in the unconscious It could not be made conscious by will. And so a lot of your memories are in the unconscious. Uh, All the biological processes, like your cells dividing, a part of your psyche is regulating that. Like your heartbeat, a part of your psyche is regulating that. And at any given moment, you are processing so much information that if you had to consciously keep track of each thing, it would absolutely overwhelm you with awe and you wouldn't be able to move. And... A a function of the conscious mind is to filter out everything that is not immediately important to your survival Mm -hmm. or to the things that you believe are meaningful in the moment right now. So it's a filter. Schizophrenia on one level is where contents of the unconscious are splashing and flooding the conscious mind in a way that's not being asked for that can be overwhelming. And the way the unconscious mind speaks is how dreams operate. So it's emotions and images. And schizophrenics on some level, and again, there's a lot of different conditions that we all lump together inside of the word schizophrenia. But Mm -hmm. my experience with schizophrenics is their waking dream is so powerful that it overwhelms the filter of the conscious mind. And most people have not been given the language of how to interpret the images and the feelings that are coming from the unconscious. And what's really sad in our culture, if you have any type, if you have even a hint of schizophrenic symptoms arise in your life, you are very likely given antipsychotics, which it's, it's a complicated issue, and it would take a lot to explain, but they tend to numb and gunk and glue the brain in a way that makes it very, very hard to untangle um, what is trying to emerge. And there's really good research that shows <clears throat> if you have a psychotic break and you're in a Western world, you are actually going to end up more sick in 10 years because of how we treat it than if you had a psychotic break in a third world country that doesn't use pharmacological intervention to try to treat it. And there's Mm -hmm. been evidence in our culture that has been suppressed that, uh, I forget the man's name, but there was someone who was a part of the um, Institute of Mental Health who created this outpatient experiment where instead of giving schizophrenics pharmaceuticals, You put them in a house with untrained professionals, but just with people who are told, don't lie to these people and treat them like they're normal. 
and give them daily tasks to do. And that the people mm. who, the schizophrenics who go in this outpatient type of experiment do better in six months than people who go into a mental hospital who are given antipsychotics. And um, so I think schizophrenia, mm -hmm. when it's not made worse by pharmaceutical intervention, um, can actually be a spiritual experience that if contended with and the people are taught how to interpret it and contend with it, um, can transform by it and be uh, more whole humans. And it's actually very well documented in, in anthropological literature that the shamans of all indigenous cultures, they begin in childhood or adolescence by having a psychotic break. And then the tribe has some set of initiations for these special type of people that actually channel the psychotic break into helping them become shamans. Right. I think a big question that's coming up for me is, um, you know, how to harness um, this condition if what they're hearing slash seeing uh, that's coming out of this condition is negative. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's making it harder for you. It's, it's telling you things in a paranoid way where, for instance, I went to YouTube because I, I had an experience with a, a schizophrenic person and I wanted to learn more about what it was they were going through. And I typed in, you know, schizophrenia. And eventually I found something called schizophrenic simulator. And I was able to, you know, watch a couple videos uh, that had this title. And it's like they're hearing voices. Like, for example, some, you know, you're walking into a convenience store just to get, you know, let's say a soda. But like, as they're walking in, they're hearing, don't walk in, don't walk in. It's a trap. It's a trap. They're out to get you. They're out to get you and this type of stuff. You know, that seems to be uh, the common experience is that they're hearing stuff that makes it really hard for them. And uh, it's kind right. of got a, let's say, negative tone of voice to it that it's telling them. Yeah. Um, I'm sure people maybe uh, get lucky and have maybe a nice voice and they're, uh, it, it, it's uh, so much less debilitating. And yes, they're hearing voices and getting splashes from the unconscious, but it's maybe putting them into a creative path or a spiritual um, tradition and where they're able to channel yeah. it and harness it in a way that's maybe more productive. Now, what is it about like, yeah. you know, uh, the negative stuff that comes from it that really makes it hard for these people to live a normal right. life and... Um, and I wonder how and where that stems from right. the, as far as it being a hindrance to their development. Yeah, so there's some studies that have found that the schizophrenic voices on average in Western culture are negative, And in indigenous cultures, they're positive and they're interpreted as elders giving you advice. And the way that I understand this is all of us have voices in our head right now but they feel yeah. like they're thoughts that arise inside of us and they're not experienced as auditory external voices. Mm -hmm. My intuition is, um, so all of us download an inner mom and an inner dad based off of our experience with our parents. We all download some teacher or some coach uh, that we experience and their voices are in us now. And um, mm -hmm. 
if you have grown up in a situation where you were abused mentally or physically, um, that the way the voice had, or the way these voices, their vibe inside of you is accusatory. They're attacking you. Um, but the, the invitation is you can talk to them back and you, you can create a dialogue with them. And there's a type of psychology called internal family systems, which is one of the most powerful tools that I've ever found in my coaching practice to work with people. And it's <clears throat> give these different voices inside of you names, imagine them as characters. <clears throat> and one of the key aspects right. of internal family systems is all of these characters inside of you, they believe that they are protecting you because something happened in your past where you unconsciously downloaded a story that you needed to adopt this strategy to avoid some type of pain or to seek some type of pleasure that you want. And most of these mm -hmm. stories were downloaded in childhood and haven't been questioned or updated since then. And mm -hmm. if, if you've been persecuted in some way, this voice is trying to protect you, but you can also rise to meet the voice and have a conversation with it and begin to engage it in a way where you can tame it, but it fundamentally needs to be met. And the interesting thing about um, anything that happens to you that you allow to shrink your sphere of agency, the fear gets bigger. But if you face it mm -hmm. and you contend with it, the fear can actually lose its power and you can actually become more competent. And mm -hmm. like one of the things to really connect to is all of us have a multitude of characters inside of us. And if they're constantly mm -hmm. ignored, they get louder. And I think that the voices do not necessarily have to be negative but, you know, if you grow up in a culture where you are taught that if you have these voices, there's something wrong with you, then you will learn to not trust them. You will learn to be afraid of them. You will learn to not engage with them. And maybe they need you to engage with them. Yeah, absolutely. That is a, another big topic uh, that I that I know that you're into um, archetypes because yeah. I, I listened to your podcasts on other interviews and I just heard a, one of your most recent ones with Michael Phillip where you were talking about these archetypes or almost like these characters that exist within each of us. And I was always wondering, um, is it you assigning the role or are they pre-existing roles? Because for example, you call to this part of you that you call the king within you, right? Correct. Is that, you know, a known archetype that you can identify as, oh yeah, like that's, you know, what Jung or some other philosophy would say is that king archetype coming through? Or is it you assigning that to the part that to you feels like the king part? Yeah, that's a good question. So archetypes are essentially like instinctual modes of behavior that you come into the world intuitively understanding how to put different people or characters inside that mold. And so mm -hmm. um, 
one way to think about it is it's like you can walk into a forest and see that there are archetypical ways that energy will condense. And we might call it a river or we might call it a tree, but it's not actually a tree. It's not actually a river. It's this beautiful manifestation of energy into a specific structure. And as, as long as you have a name that allows you to understand the nature of that energy, it helps you move through the forest. And, and so you have these archetypical condensation of energies inside of your psyche that help you understand how to behave. And there's a fundamental like ruler inside each of us like a chief Mm -hmm. or a king or a queen. And those are just words that make sense due to my cultural upbringing. But um, fundamentally, everyone has access to this inner ruler that Mm -hmm. when they're centered and they're calm and they're at peace, they have equanimity. They have the ability to choose what the right action is in the right moment. They have the ability to not judge other people and to simply see them and receive them. They have the ability to choose to do the scary thing in the face of whatever is happening. And I am trying to cultivate relationships with these powerful archetypes inside of me by giving them titles, by imagining what they look like to me personally, and then trying to understand how that energy moves through me specifically. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, you know, to me, you know, since I am a fan of fantasy, um, you know, whether it be J.R.R. Tolkien or things like Game of Thrones or video games like Skyrim or, you know, things that I've played in the past, you know, the king does resonate with me. And so when I hear you talk about the king, I think to myself, hmm, I, I resonate with that part of myself too. That must be my king. Um, so I understand now you're saying, really, it's a symbol. It's a symbol for the ruler part of you. It could be a king. It could be a Viking. Yeah, I think a great thing that people can do is think about your favorite movie and think mm-hmm. about the character in your favorite movie that you admire the most. That will give you right. an idea of, <clears throat> there's a hero inside of you that is mature, mm-hmm and fully formed and if you learn what it feels like to be in its energy and to ask it for help and to ask it how it would act in this given situation and you cultivate that ability to feel into it and to ask it uh it's just fucking useful like right when i'm having a tough conversation with someone i love or when i have to make a choice at work or when i have to choose to do something brave to imagine that there is this king inside of me who mm-hmm. is unflinching and brave and just and wants to be of service and is going to show up like it just helps me be a doper human. And Absolutely. for people who are interested in this, I would highly recommend the book King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, uh, specifically for men. And then the book mm-hmm. the Women Who or The Woman Who Runs With the Wolves for Women. Um, Mm -hmm. and they explore these archetypes that are alive in all of us. Like for women, Mm -hmm. three really powerful archetypes are the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And the maiden is like, you know, the, you're single, 
you're a woman in the world and you have to contend with all the struggles and blessings that come from being young and beautiful and all that stuff. And then there's the archetypical stage of the mother. And that doesn't mean that it only comes out when you have a child. Like you are archetypically a mother to plants or to animals or to people that you care about, etc. And then the crone is the wise old woman who feels the ebb and flow of the moon of nature knows intuitively how to feel into the moment and create magic. And those are some of the archetypes for women. Amazing. So just, you know, diving a little deeper into the concept, you know, something's telling me that there's probably almost infinite archetypes. Yeah, my intuition is that there's not a fixed amount because the psyche is dynamic and always growing because it is nature itself and there is no like because in every moment nature is being renewed anew um there is no fixed amount and uh you know really it comes down to your creativity but what i have found is that the king warrior magician lover that four tends to cover most of the archetypes or tends to cover most of the situations that i have in my life where i need to call upon some of these energies but like, right. I also have an archetype for the fearful part of me. And I used to call him Smeagol. And uh, <laughs> now I call him Rufus because I'm less judgmental of him. And Rufus is just this big, goofy black dog in my psyche that just <laughs> barks at shit. And it barks because it doesn't mm-hmm. understand. Um, right. And I also think a really important archetype is the inner child. So the inner boy or the inner girl. And... Um, I do a lot of work with that archetype, especially in relationships. Right. But yeah. So how so how many archetypes is it that you think people, you know, would find useful, you know, like say they want to explore this philosophy and integrate it into their life? Um, is it kind of that, you know, and I don't mean to be so deterministic or like scientific with it, but it, like four to six kind of archetypes is what maybe would help someone integrate all the parts of their psyche. Does that sound about right? That's like asking um, to make a beautiful picture. How many crayons do you need to use? And my yeah. response would be envision a beautiful painting and then just start using crayons. And then however many you need to finish cool. And I so what I would offer is, you know, start with the four basic colors, you know, and in this idea, it'd be the four primary archetypes. That would be king, warrior, magician, lover. Um, and mm-hmm. for women, it's like uh, queen, uh, huntress, crone, and lover. And then just mm-hmm. start there. And like every single right. person that I've ever like done this work with, it comes effortlessly. Like if I ask them to imagine, like, what does your queen look like? How does she walk? Mm-hmm. How does she talk? Right. What's something that's happened in your life where you could feel that you were really channeling, that you were channeling her? Like, it's mm-hmm. effortless every time that I've done this with someone because they're archetypes. And I would just say, right. start with those four basic ones and then just live your life. And what's beautiful is when you start mm-hmm. to understand this work, if a new one needs to come online to communicate something with you, it will. And the creativity and the personalization and the intimacy that can arise from this is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it, man. And so you say when you do this work with people, how is it that you work with people, 
you know, using archetypes? Is it some type of workshop that you offer or is it one-on-one? You know, what's kind of your setting? Yeah, so it mainly actually comes up in friendships and in relationships. And basically what happens is I just share my inner kingdom with people and then I just slowly start to ask them questions. And like I remember my last partner when we first really started to get close in one evening, we mapped out like four of her major archetypes. And like mm-hmm. one was her queen, one was the one who was afraid of relationships, one was one who was jealous, uh, another was the one who was like the writer and the artist. And mm-hmm. like as soon as they connect to these parts and they give them names, like it just effortlessly would unfold in our conversations about like, this part feels this thing uh, in response to what you did, or this part is the part that I feel is really active today, etc. Right, um, right. In my coaching work, uh, I tend to not go into deep detail. I tend to just work with people's king or queens and then their inner child. Um, mm-hmm. And that tends to just be enough to get people through or past most of their obstacles. That is awesome. That answers a lot of questions, I think. And, what I'm interpreting these archetypes as similarly to astrology, but not astrology because it's not reliant on some physical fixed thing in the sky. It's unique to each person, but it is a map of self-discovery and programming so that you can understand yourself better. Because if you don't know that there are these parts within you that come out at different times, you just think that's you it's like, uh, why am I feeling like this right now? Why am I feeling like that right now? I was just over here doing this and feeling this way. Like, But if you understand the different parts of you and maybe give them names or qualities, you can, you can then shift from you know, one archetype maybe to another when you, when you need to have that burst of courage or that burst of creativity or whatever it is. It's like, oh, I know my king, so let me call him in. If you don't know your king, you can't call him in. <laughs> exactly. Know? It'd be like trying to drive a car by only knowing how to move the steering wheel and hit the gas. And that the moment it mm-hmm. stops, the moment that that stops working, if you have no conception of what an engine is, you have no idea what, a, what any of the parts are, that as long as it's going smoothly, you're like, my car works. But the moment it stops <laughs> working you don't even know how to begin to get it back to working again because you don't have an idea that your car is not just one thing. It's a whole bunch of parts Mm -hmm. put together. And also what's interesting to feel into is astrology is evidence of the archetypes because what we've done is our ancestors looked up at the sky and then they projected characters and monsters They projected the Mm -hmm. archetypes within the psyche onto the stars to make sense of the movement and the patterns and the stories that they projected onto those things. Wow. Beautiful. So, so I just imagine, you know, since these guys were adults and astronomers and people who were very focused on uh, discovery of the world, the universe around them, that, you know, those tools that maybe gave them that, extrasensory perception and that we still have yet to know how they built the pyramids or how they assigned astrology or whatever. I think that it was very likely the tools of plant medicines guiding the way. What do you think about that? I think that that is a very likely um, hypothesis. And the thing to connect to is imagination 
and dreaming and psychedelic visions are all the same thing. And mm -hmm. the prefrontal cortex, which is the weakest when you're a child and doesn't fully develop until you're about 25, is the part of you that filters out the imagination. And there's all sorts of techniques that you can do, and every spiritual system has some type of technique that allows the prefrontal cortex to quiet. So the part that dreams, that imagines, that has visions can come forward. And essentially what psychedelics do is they diminish the prefrontal cortex filter, and it allows the part that is always dreaming like there's a part of you that's always creating visions. Like a daydream is literally a vision. And it reduces the filter of the prefrontal cortex and allows that part to get louder. And I think one of the most important things that people can do if they're interested in understanding altered states of consciousness is to learn how to understand dreams. Because dreams are psychedelic visions that are manifested every night that are so powerful that it's indistinguishable from your lived reality. It tricks you every night. Right. You've been tricked every night right. for the last right. entirety of your life, and you believe it's real. Right. And there's a part of you that creates dreams effortlessly that's beyond your conscious control. And these dreams often tell you things that you didn't know you know, that once you learn them, it actually guides you. Sometimes it predicts your future for you, and sometimes it tells you oh, things yeah. about people that you don't know that there's no way that you could consciously know. And it's the right. same language that psychedelics speak. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that, that brings up my, uh, my question about prophecy or, you know, for example, I have seen things in dreams that then later happened. And they're very small detail things. It's not like this grand scheme that exactly what I dreamt happened, but small details where it's like, I dreamt about this thing. It's almost like a small detail I don't remember. But like when it happens in reality, it's that sense of deja vu. Oh, wait, this has happened before. Wait, this happened in a dream. You know, what do you think that is? Like, how are we telling the future through our dreams? How is that happening? Yeah, the truth is, is I don't fucking know, but I'll, I'll explore a little bit. Um, that idea that you're articulating is essentially what Jung called synchronicity. And he wrote a book trying to explain synchronicity, and I've read it, and I didn't understand almost a single fucking word. But <clears throat> my <laughs> best attempt at trying to understand it is that, so if the conscious mind is 1% of the psyche, uh, the, the thing in the middle of the conscious mind is the ego. Like that's the character inside of the conscious mind. Uh, there's a character inside of the unconscious mind. And Jung calls that the capital S self. And he said that if you imagine the self as a personality, <clears throat> it's millions of years old. It's lived every type of life. It knows what it's like to be a mother and a father and a child and a chief and a shaman and a slave, and every other type of life that you can live, it's lived it. It's known death hundreds of times. It's known rebirth hundreds of times. It's seen almost every type of life that can be seen. <clears throat> and sometimes uh, it seems that it will interact with you in a way where it can feel into the flow of your life and then predict like it's, it's trying to help you navigate your becoming. 
It's the same energy inside of an acorn that is guiding the acorn to become an oak tree. And so there's that energy inside of you that's trying to guide you to become who you could be. And it, it's had so many experiences with life that it can anticipate specific actions that will unfold in your future. But also, mm-hmm. Jung says that the self exists outside of space and time. I don't understand that, but he says yeah. that. And if it exists outside of space and time, maybe it can see your paths before you. And sometimes it'll just drop you a little breadcrumb. Yep. It does. You know, I feel like that has been the calling to the spiritual path for myself has always been these synchronicities and always been the fact that something I did before that didn't make sense after another experience made perfect sense. And it, and it just keeps doing that over and over. It's like a fractal. It's like, sometimes, you know, you don't feel it. You're not connected to the synchronicity of your life and where you're at right now. But then other times it's like, dude, when I didn't feel it just a little bit ago, it makes total sense why I didn't feel it then and why I feel it now. You know, it always kind of, if you keep trying it will keep guiding you. And, and it's so hard to put a finger on what it is. Most people just say, it's God. God showed me this. God showed me that. God showed me this. You know, God did this to me. Or, you know, and and I wonder what, you know, because my concept of God has changed so much since using psychedelics. And I personally really resonate with the, um, the philosophy that Alex and Allison Gray, the artists, um, put out into the world which is God is a force. It is a intelligence that weaves its way through all creation. It is essentially all creation. Consciousness, like this table in front of me is consciousness. It's just a very like low vibe or maybe high vibrate. I don't know. It's either a low or high vibrating consciousness that is, you know, very distinctly different than the consciousness that we think of as consciousness, but it's still that. Yeah, my... What do you think? What, what is God, you know, what, yeah, to you? Um, I think when anyone uses the word God and then they attach a uh, intention or a preference to that thing, I think people most of the time mean the daemon. And the daemon is okay. this idea from Greek mythology where it's like each of us have an inner guide that's trying to guide us to our best life. And it mm-hmm. cares when we don't do the right thing. And it cares when we do the right thing. That's not God. Mm-hmm. My understanding of God is it's essentially interchangeable with the one. And God is undifferentiated. God has no opposite. There's a great quote, I think it's by Rumi, where um, God's center is everywhere and circumference is nowhere. And wow. God has no preference. There is nothing that can be done that is outside of God, there, God doesn't have, it, it doesn't care. It doesn't, because it's all. It's, and it's beyond our comprehension. It's essentially infinity, eternity, always has been, always will be, is and is not. Like it's beyond language. And God is not concerned with what's being done because everything is God, all. Um, wow. The thing that feels like it cares that I think most people call God 
is your daemon. It's your okay. inner guide that's trying to help you become who you could be. And so when you make stupid choices or greedy choices or self-serving choices that aren't kind or whatever, that thing can feel like it can punish you, you know, or like mm-hmm. that thing will haunt you. And there's also that, that thing will also be super pumped when you do the right thing or when you do the hard thing or when you tell the truth. And all of it is a function of God, but God itself, the one, is all. There is no container. No word can touch it. Like the first line of the Tao Te Ching is, uh, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao. Like, that's God. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, that is it. That makes, oh, that makes so much sense. I'm glad that you exist, <laughs> man. You can explain this to everyone. <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> You're doing great. You're doing amazing. Um, so the it's funny because I remember, you know, because I said earlier that I'm a fan of Alex Gray. I was listening to his Joe Rogan podcast and he explained, I think it was Socrates, you know, stopped in some town square and had a like day or two day long battle with his uh, daemon. Have you heard of this? I have not heard of the specific story, and now I'm going to have to go and check it out. But I'm very familiar with the daemon as it is connected to Socrates. The idea being he was dubbed the wisest man in Athens because he only listened to mm-hmm. his daemon. And his daemon um, would only tell him what not to do. And uh, he eventually was put on trial for corrupting the youth of Athens. Because essentially what he would do is he would go question the smartest people in government in public, and he would do what's called the Socratic questioning method. And he would just ask them questions until he made them look stupid. And these people started to like lose, like the public started to lose respect for these people, and Socrates became like super famous. And they eventually were like, we're going to put you on trial in six months. And in Athens at that time, that basically meant like you're exiled, like leave or we're going to kill you. And Socrates Mm -hmm. was getting ready to leave. And his daemon said, don't leave. And Socrates Mm -hmm. was like, "Uh, if I don't leave, I'm going to die. And his daemon just said, don't leave. And so there's a famous story from Plato where all of his friends go to his prison cell the day before his trial and try to break him out. And he explains to them, I'm not leaving. Um, Mm -hmm. and then he goes to trial that day and drinks hemlock and dies. Wow. Wow. Isn't that such an interesting thing that so many greats have an early death? Well, he was an old man, but he, his, his death was like Jesus in the sense that he chose the whisper. He chose to serve the Mm -hmm. whisper inside of him at all costs. And that the ultimate yeah. cost is to die an earthly death, but to essentially what seems to be the essence of those stories is you get a spiritual life. Yes, that makes sense. And that I think, you know, is, is what many of the spiritual paths, you know, kind of say is that if you kind of uh, go out, you know, serving God, serving the higher purpose, you will, you know, go to heaven, ascend. That's an interesting thing. What is it that you think that afterlife experience is? Because I have my own theory informed by psychedelics, which to me, 
give you a pretty much a preview of the death experience. And, you know, what I would think is that the brain is so far um, ahead of the human experience that it, it has built a chemical, uh, you know, structure to ensure that you pretty much blast off into infinity in your brain. And that's kind of like DMT. And if it's not exactly DMT, it does what DMT does, even if it's a different chemical. Um, and, and that when you die and your brain like goes offline, you almost like eject out of physical, you know, your physical body and enter that spiritual awareness for all of time and all and all of space, because at that point, space and time are infinite and you're not incarnated anymore. Well, what do you think happens when you when you die? What do you think about that theory, first of all? <laughs> so this is a place where I struggle. And obviously it's because none of us know what the fuck happens when you die is there's a couple of ways to approach it. And the first hypothesis that I have, I think, is a lot in alignment with what you shared. And it's that, like, our brain is powerful enough that, like, in the last minute of your dreaming at night, if your alarm clock goes off, your brain is able to process so much information so fastly that it can weave the alarm clock as a meaningful event based off of what happened at the beginning of the dream that felt like it was five minutes ago, but the alarm clock had to have entered into your conscious awareness the moment you began dreaming the entire dream for it to make sense with what happened at the beginning. That's and it. there's this really great short story that was made into a French film that's about um, a soldier gets kidnapped by the opposing army during, I think, the Revolutionary War. And he gets hung on a bridge. And as he's falling off the bridge, his rope snaps and he escapes into the river. They're trying to shoot at him. He eventually gets to the bank and he sprints all the way home. It takes him hours to get home. He gets to his house. He sees his wife. He goes up to hug his wife. And the moment he's about to embrace her, he's back on the bridge and he's hung and he's dead. And yep. the idea is that in the moment of death, the brain will hallucinate whatever it yeah. has found to be the most calming story that it can give that mm -hmm. unique brain to help it transition into death. Like it's the last like compassionate thing that it can do. So whatever your belief is about what happens when you die, maybe you program your brain to give you that. And so if you're mm -hmm. an atheist and you believe it's blackness, maybe that's what your brain gives you. If you're, you know, if you believe that you go to some place where there's a bunch of virgins and they converge on you and start to kiss you and have sex with you, maybe that's what you get. If you believe mm -hmm. that you're going to hell, maybe you program that. But eventually that, eventually there will be no more electrical activity unfolding in your brain on any level. And then it will end, but you, you can't have an experience of ending. Like Alan Watts has this great quote and it's, what was it like before you were born? You mm -hmm. weren't just in a sea of nothing. You, mm -hmm. Like we don't even have the language to articulate that you weren't experiencing. And so when that hallucination ends, maybe it's just like what it was before you were born. Um, the thing that I struggle with still, and I've done a lot of psychedelics, is everything that I've ever experienced on a psychedelic 
was the byproduct of there still being electrical and chemical activity in my body. There will event like, and so when anyone tells me that they've experienced death, there's a very calm part of me that's like, no, no, you have not. And to claim that you have is to speak, uh, either purposefully or unconsciously inaccurately that is not helpful. Like everything that you've ever experienced, there was still electrical and chemical impulses happening in your body. And so it was a, it very likely was a production of consciousness coming from the body. But I've also had experiences in the last year or two where I don't think consciousness arises from complex biology. I think consciousness is the fundamental by is the fundamental essence of existence and that biology can get to a point where it taps into it. And so with that, with that being the case, whatever the experience of consciousness is without my body is something beyond my comprehension that I have no experience of. And so I have no idea what it's going to be. I think that there will be a continuation of consciousness, but that it will be so different than what I understand as my consciousness that none of my personality will continue on with me. And that's currently where I'm at right now. But then I read books like, uh, I forget, like The Journey of Souls, which is a psychotherapist, did hypnotism to like hundreds of people, regressed them to past lives where they died, and then had them articulate what the journey was of their death process. And he found you know like hundreds of people all saying basically the same thing so i don't know if that's evidence but i'm open to just being completely fucking wrong Mm -hmm. wow that was incredible yes that that is what i have come to in my you know experience as well with at least understanding what um this type of non-biased non-human uh, perspective having experience that psychedelics can give you where it's just kind of like you're almost witnessing the you know they they say the the inner clockwork or you know the Tao itself um, those things become somehow tangible because you're not really concerned with you at this point that's what they call ego death is like the you has kind of you know, step to the background and now you're just kind of observing cosmic forces at play. And though essentially what you just said makes a lot of sense about you can't end because consciousness itself is the building block that all of this is formed. The part of me that's God, right, will not end, cannot end, has never ended. But the part of me that's Eric, mm -hmm. like the God part is Mm -hmm. witnessing Eric. Like, Eric is a fucking illusion. Eric is a creation that is a byproduct of having a body. Like, I think that egos are essentially the psychological avatars that are created to serve the will of our biological instincts, which is Mm -hmm. don't get run over by the car and then do things (laughs) with your body so attractive people of the opposite gender will make babies with you. And all the motherfucking things that come from those two primary instincts right right and you know to to so many people that is what you know real life is and yet you know your 
you and I in this conversation right now, we're, you know, we're attempting to, to stand beyond, uh, you know, the basic understanding and look more at the, I almost want to say metaphysical, but I don't know if that's the right word. I mean, yeah, that's beyond you know, like the physical. What, that's what meta means. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's so interesting, man. Um, how, how, it, what's okay. Here's a good question that's coming up is what's science and its relationship to understanding these spiritual concepts? Can they ever converge? Will they? Do you see that as a possible future that we will be able to tell that consciousness is the root of everything? So there's two questions there. And um, the answer to one is not necessarily the answer to the other one. And it's, can spirituality and science uh, get along? And I think the answer is yes. Um, can mm-hmm. science prove that consciousness is the fundamental unit of existence? Maybe. But mm-hmm. like the interesting thing about science and spirituality is if you want it to make sense together, it already does. And um, there's been lots of philosophers and scientists who have articulated this. The person that's done it the best for me was Jordan Peterson in Maps of Meaning, but essentially how he describes it is there's essentially two types of worlds. One world can be explored scientifically, and it's what is. Like, how do you discern what is? And then the other world is what ought to be, what should be. One is the domain of science, and the other one you could say is the domain of ethics or the domain of value or the domain of spirituality. And science cannot say what ought to be. But science is the greatest tool that we've ever developed for discerning what is. So what is the vibratory wavelength of this color? Or what is the atomic structure of this table? But the question, what should I do with my life? Not science. And it doesn't need to be. And the way that I see it is each of us has a thing inside of us, our daemon, that is whispering in each moment what ought to be. The greatest tool that you can ever use to, in service of your daemon is science. Like it's one of the most effective ways to navigate, but it doesn't. It's not the best at at determining or setting the destination. Mm-hmm. That's pretty profound in in understanding the the distinction between the daemon and God, because so many people myself included almost before this podcast, you know, um, would think of them as the same thing and think of this like such highly, such more highly intelligent, you know, all encompassing being controlling the outcomes of your life. If you are to displease it, that versus there's a part of me that, that kind of knows where it wants to go and is guiding me to my, to my kind of highest evolution and it puts it more in the realm of your control you know instead of feeling like it's this overarching being that can you know put things in front of you or actually clear the way right and the number one most um powerful psychological tribute or attribute that we have found 
correlates with resilience and success and um, not getting PTSD and being able to get through suffering is the felt sense of agency. It is the feeling Mm -hmm. that you have a will that can change the outcomes in your life. And it's, it's why this idea, it's, it's why any civilization that's tried to teach a story where you don't have free will doesn't work. Humans need the, the felt sense of will. And I don't know if it's true, but they need it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I get a sense that, that we do have free will and I've been on podcasts before where, you know, I'm, I'm talking with, you know, fellow musicians that, would say we don't have free will and everything is some type of it's funny like the way they went down the rabbit hole which was like you know because you saw some ad earlier on in that day that's the reason you craved a hamburger and so it was predetermined that you were going to want that hamburger right. and, and you didn't make the decision that you so, wanted it and a way to just completely destroy this argument is when you're talking to someone who says that you don't have free will, you can ask them, uh, if your partner cheated on you today, would you be upset with them? Would you interact with them like they had a choice? The answer is yes. And if, and if, and if, and if someone interacted with you where you did something good and they're like, you didn't actually do that. You were just, you know, it, it, it was predetermined that your hard right. work and your sweat and your tears would pay off. And that's why you're successful. It's not because you actually did anything like mm-hmm. people react and live their life as if they have will, as if they have free will, they treat other people like they have free will. Our law, mm-hmm. all the law in the world implies that you have free will implies that you have choice and sit and To be influenced is not the same as to be deterministic. Yes, people are influenced, people are primed, but it seems to be that people have free will. Right. And I think part of the reason that, you know, it may feel like you're trapped or, you know, doing the same routines that are not getting you results is that the the world itself society is like this maze meant to keep you doing things to not truly kind of think for yourself and or produce something new and it's those few that do that you know innovative work and become known as an inventor or known for their big brand or you know known for their amazing artwork that pushed the limitations or you know, it's like those people that are shaping and building reality. It's, it's super interesting because essentially getting out of your way, letting the daemon come through and achieve the things that it knows you have, you, you're able to achieve. You have the, the ability to do it if you believe in yourself. You know what I mean? I like to think that um, when it comes to not having some sense of, confidence that every single person, including like Steve Jobs or any big name you can think of that has really done something huge, has more or less the same exact skill, uh, potential skill that we have. Like we all started as just an infant. You know what I mean? Like we all could 
rearrange our lives to an extent that we become like an extraordinary person in the sense that you, you know, you make Apple or you make on it or you make Nike or whatever it is that, and you start becoming a leader in the industry or in the world or whatever, you know? Yeah. Tim Ferriss has this quote that I love and it's reality is negotiable. And like, Mm -hmm. there's a really great experiment that you can start doing today. And it's everywhere you go, no matter what, just ask for a discount. And just feel how much fear is in your body at simply asking. The reason Mm -hmm. most people don't feel that reality is negotiable is because they're afraid of hearing the word no. They're afraid of being rejected because on a biological evolutionary level, that is equated to being exiled from the tribe and that meant death. And so there's this Mm -hmm. old psychological echo that to be denied or to be said no to in any way to be rejected is equivalent to death. But that is this artificial barrier that's in everyone's psyche. And the thing is, is that it's really crowded to be inside that barrier because that's where 99% of the population lives. The thing that's so counterintuitive is once you step beyond that artificial psychological barrier, there's only a few motherfuckers out there. And there's so yeah. much freedom out there. Mm-hmm. And right. like you can create your motherfucking life. Like when I got my degree in cognitive psychology, uh, I ended up working at Chipotle because I didn't understand that there wouldn't just be a magnificent job waiting for me. And when I was at Chipotle, I mm-hmm. bought Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek. And I read it three (laughs) times in a row and it finally clicked. Like I can create a company that's not for the purpose to make a billion dollars. It's to free me. It's, it's like, cause he has this technique where write down your perfect year. Like what would be your dreamlining and then calculate how much it would actually cost to live the most lavish possible year that you can imagine. Yeah. Mine was like (laughs) $60,000. And what I realized is like, you can do the math. If you sell some product for a hundred dollars, X, X, Y, Z, like if I sold 600 of these things, no, if, if I fucking sold, yeah, I think it's 600. Um, Mm-hmm. I would be completely free to have my dream life this year. And yeah. like, if you are only around people who believe that they have to live the matrix, you're going to think that that's the only option. But one of the most profound yeah. things that's ever happened to me is to be around, like everyone around me believes the motherfucking opposite. No one has a conventional job. Yeah. And I see just hundreds of examples of unique personal lives where there's very few people who are quote unquote rich, but almost all of them are motherfucking free. And Mm -hmm. it, it requires the belief that you can negotiate almost everything in your life. Yep. Exactly. That's some of the most valuable advice, you know, one could, could really hope to hear. I think that is the key is to, uh, build a life around you that you don't need to escape from. And if you 
are able to do this technique of, you know, doing the math. I believe it's called dreamlining and able to see what is it that you would want to do in your perfect career and your perfect kind of lifestyle. What is it daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly that you want to be a part of? And you were to write those things out, assign how much it would be to, to do each of those things and then work the business out on your end. Absolutely. You can free yourself to the point that you do things only that you want to do when you want to do them. Amen. Wow. That was, that was incredible advice. So you, you said, you know, the matrix and, uh, I've heard you speak in the past and podcasts before about, you know, what the matrix is. And I would just, I think you have a really eloquent way of describing it. What, what do you think, you know, the matrix is? The matrix is essentially consensus reality. And I don't think it's evil. I don't think it's malicious. It's essentially what naturally happens when a group of humans get together in a, in a, in a size over 150. The thing that is keeping us together are stories. Government is a story. States are stories. Laws are stories. Taxes are stories. Money our stories, all of these are things that we collectively agree with each other have meaning and that we have to act in a specific way because the story is true. Mm-hmm. But every story is malleable. Every story is changeable. No story is, is objective truth. Every story can be remixed. And of course, There are people that believe the story so deeply that if you try to not follow the rules, you will get put in jail and that's real or they will kill you. Like that is a part of understanding how these, how these stories are believed and what the consequences are if you get too far outside of them. But Mm -hmm. we all have the power to be Neo. And I think that the Mm -hmm. most powerful place to start is to liberate the Neo inside of you and to recognize none of these stories are objectively true. You can play with all of them inside of you. And again, like a really powerful place to start is to believe I'm going to find a dollar bill this week and say that every morning Mm -hmm. and then just see what the fuck happens. You are likely going to find a dollar bill. I don't know how that works. Mm -hmm. But the multiple times I've played with it, it works. But then also challenge yourself. Go outside and tell yourself as many times as you need to that you will fly. And eventually you'll realize, okay, so there are some limits here, you know? (laughs) But the the motherfucking sea between that dollar bill and being able to fly, there's a lot of place to, like, be a magician. And it's where, like... You have something like 60,000 thoughts a day. Most of them, it's like 80 or 90% of them are repetitive and negative and unconscious. Mm-hmm. You have the ability to change your self-talk. And like a lot of the work that I do is just to expose people to their own self-talk and to help them change it. But all language is magic. Mm-hmm. The matrix is just essentially made up of stories. And you can tell new dope stories. Right. In order for people to do that, um, there has to be usually some type of 
uh, epiphany, you know, like, and it can come through the voice, um, through hearing, being exposed to the right information. It can come through experience, you know, mentorship, these types of things, but a way of kind of self initiating those understandings I have definitely found is through the responsible, uh, and spiritual use of psychedelics. Um, they allow you to reprogram a bit. They allow you to kind of clear the cache of all of your patterns and behaviors and loops that you find yourself in and, um, say, okay, well, now that I can see through all of that bullshit, how do I want to, you know, how do I want to create my life? What things should I leave behind that don't serve me? What things should I change, um, you know, in, in the, in their place. Um, because I've heard that it's much better to, instead of try to like quit something, for example, replace it with another thing. So, you know, that those psychedelics are able to help you, you know, break free of the quote unquote matrix of the stories that you find yourself in and say, okay, now when I land, you know, from this experience, I now have like a, uh, a reference point or a remembrance where I know that I can create my life one step at a time, one action at a time. And slowly but surely, you get there. Amen. I think the most powerful, practical tool that I think people can learn if they're interested in changing their lives is to learn about habit change because Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of quotes from all sorts of famous people throughout the ages that essentially say the same thing. And it's your life is the creation of your habits. Change your habits. Mm -hmm. You will change who you are. What you are is an accumulation of your habits. And we understand how to change habits. And fundamentally, it comes down to, here's kind of my overarching technique. Imagine the human that you want to be. If you knew you would be successful, if you really dreamed into the man or the woman that you want to be. And I think a way to flip this to make this more dramatic is, each of us are going to die. And on our deathbed, I truly believe in the death moment, you have to meet who you could have become. And you have to look them in the eye. And heaven is going to be, you look them in the eye and you both know, I did my fucking best and I brought you into the world. And hell is to look that person in the eye and to know you didn't fucking show up. You didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And you have to live the next life with that knowing. So Mm -hmm. each of us has a potential inside of us. If you imagine what are the habits of my potential self? Really dream into that. Maybe even let your potential right. talk to you and fucking tell you. Write them down. Right. Write down the list of habits that your potential has. And then pick one and work on it for the next year. And then next year, pick another one. Work on that. The way that I imagine it is if I integrate a single habit per year that my potential has, Like that's going to serve me the rest of my life. There is no rush. Like most people try to change like six habits on new years 
And then by the third week, they've dropped everything. And they keep trying to change the same six habits every year for 10 years. Pick one, my dude. Right. Start as small as you need right. to start and work all year on it. And after 10 years, you're going to have 10 of the essential habits that your potential has that you're going to have the rest of your life. Right. So to help someone, you know, start to pick that thing that they're going to change, that habit, what do you think is, you know, the best tactic to, you know, try to remember every day, you know, and is it write it on your forehead? You know, actually, I know that you're a fan of journaling. Um, Is that what it is? And, you know, how does one remember to keep changing the habit over and every day so that it becomes the new that so i would recommend that people go to my website and type in eric godsey the goal pyramid okay and um i have a post that essentially explains like i have it behind me right now if you could if the video of my laptop was on you'd be able to see it but at the base Mm -hmm. of the pyramid are all my core habits And then I have above that the areas of interest that I want to explore this year. And then above that, I have my main work projects that I want to work on this year. And then the level above that is my dharma or like my guiding principle or my ethos. And then the top of the pyramid is essentially a symbol that represents my daemon or the god inside of me. And I look at it every day. Amazing. So that's almost sounds like a form of art. 100% man. Yeah. So some type of art, you know, like, yes, I think that that is an incredible model, you know, like if anything, if you're listening and and you're vibing, you know, start here, start with what Eric is recommending. He's a smart guy. (laughs) If you're someone that is, you know, practicing an art, you know, maybe paint, you know, paint that perfect, you know, ideal life, you know, bring it into reality through art form, you know, write that song or that poem or that book or whatever it might be to start to live in this new truth that you want for yourself and you want to attract, you know what I mean? Amen. And I think being able to see it every day, like Mm -hmm. the ancient part of us responds more to visual imagery than to linguistic symbols. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much. So I have a couple more questions. These things came up in me during uh, other podcasts I was listening to. And just now that I have the chance to ask you, you know, we could kind of blast through a couple of them. Um, But what are your thoughts on Eastern religion and yoga? Hmm. Um, Fundamentally, I think that the gift of Eastern religions are to teach us how to be okay with what is. Mm -hmm. And I think that the highest value that the West gives is imagining what you want to suffer in striving for. And so the way that I see this almost is like, if life is a game, the deep jewel of Eastern philosophy is it can teach you how to put down the controller. And that... Mm -hmm. If people don't know that they can do that, it is the most important thing that they can ever learn. What the West teaches, I think its true gem is how do you pick the biggest motherfucking boss to train and strain to try to defeat while you get to play the game? Because you eventually have to put down the controller. Mm -hmm. And so I think that... And yoga itself is essentially, it's one of the many initiation rituals that are 
world has created over and over and over again. And it's one of my favorite. But fundamentally, I think the gift of the East is it can teach you that you can actually put down the controller whenever you want. And the West can actually teach you, pick the biggest motherfucking boss to go fight. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, I've got a little bit of a theory on yoga um, that is... It's so interesting because when I find myself in, you know, you know, like a, an ecstatic state, there are things that come naturally to you. And then it's almost like I'm discovering how yoga was discovered, if that makes sense. Interesting. It's like, yes. it's like why does my hand want to go whoosh and hold out like this? You know, why do, why do I want to raise my hands to the sky? And, and then you realize, oh, these are all yoga poses. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so I feel like personally, you know, a a little theory I've had is, you know, altered states have shown the poses of yoga just because the energy was moving through you in that way. Maybe it was a dance. Maybe it was some type of meditation posture, uh, combine them all. And what's really interesting is they say a fish brought yoga into the world. And that makes a lot of sense to me because sometimes in psychedelic states, like the, the, the most unexpected thing seems so seemingly like unapart of the whole equation can grant you like the most great understanding that you have ever known. And so to me, it, it makes sense that yoga came into reality through these ecstatic states. And then they say, you know, hey, do these things <laughs> because they make you ecstatic. And they do because, you know, it was like moving its way through the human um, showing them the techniques of being in ecstasy. And then we repeat them to get back, you know? That resonates with me, brother. Awesome. I'm glad you like it. Um, okay, and I think I just have one more question, which is, what is the mission of Cathedra, and how do we learn more? I love that. Um, so Cathedra is the company that I've created to essentially allow me to live my dream life. And fundamentally, what the mission of Cathedra is to create courses and experiences and knowledge to help people connect to the daemon inside of them. Because I believe that the most effective way to help people heal themselves is to help them connect to the daemon inside of them and to teach them how to bow to it. And so Mm -hmm. what makes a church a cathedral is the creation of a throne called a cathedra that's meant for a bishop to sit in to teach whatever it is that the bishop is going to teach. Each of us are a cathedral. Our being, our psyche is a cathedral. I'm trying to help people make their inner temple a cathedral by helping them build a cathedra. And what I hope to do one day is I want to show people that you can do business in this spiritual way, where ultimately people, I want to help people create their own cathedrals, which will be a company that serves your daemon, that frees you from the matrix, that allows you to be of service to the people through the way that your daemon is whispering you to be. Mm-hmm. That's it. Beautiful. And and so tell us again where we can uh, learn more about cathedrals. Should we want to be doing that? Yeah, you can check out my website, ericgodsey.com, and I currently have one course, and it's a journaling course, and that would be the most direct way that you can learn about Cathedra, support my Cathedra, 
and start the process of connecting to your daemon because journaling has been the thing that has most helped me do that. Thank you so much. Um, so I have one more question. Maybe this ends up as a bonus because it's kind of left field. But um, it is, I, I saw your post on Kanye West um, where you said, this guy's a genius. Yep. And, and I've been finding myself thinking the same thing. And yet I'm, it's a very unpopular opinion. <laughs> yep. um, what do you like about him? And, then, and how is yeah. he a genius? Okay, so he's a genius to me because if you transpose every time he says my God or God to Damon, he's saying the same shit I'm saying. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a reflection that I do think that a part of me is genius and that my life is going to be to try to hone it and to manifest it. But he doesn't have the psychological models or the language to explain these experiences. But I, I call him a genius because it really feels like to me he is possessed by his daemon and he has learned to motherfucking bow to his daemon and yeah. his specific daemon feels like its highest skill is that it can deconstruct whatever boxes it sees and remixes it. And so mm -hmm. when you look at his art, all the music he's ever done, that's exactly how he's done it. He deconstructs old songs, reconstructs them, makes art. He's mm -hmm. done it with clothing. Now he's doing it with motherfucking farms and churches and agriculture and architecture. But that type of Damon's genius also fucks with his own ego because an ego mm -hmm. is a box. And so he's got one of the hardest type of Damon's to hold because it deconstructs and it deconstructs himself. And his only map is Christianity. And I don't think that that's a very great map for understanding these powerful psychological forces that are unfolding inside of him. But mm -hmm. he has the audacity to reimagine how to design everything about our culture. Like he's thinking about how to redesign schools and churches mm -hmm. and roads and clothing and agriculture. We need those type of people. He just doesn't yeah. have a very good psychological language for articulating these things. But he also mm -hmm. genuinely feels, and I don't know many people like this, he genuinely feels like he is bowing before his daemon and that his connection with his daemon is so clean that he believes he can do anything that his daemon asks him to do. <laughs> and we need more people like that. We mm -hmm. need people who believe that they can actually do that wild idea that they have, like if everyone that I knew had the audacity to believe that they could do the thing that's been whispering inside of them since they were a kid, the mm -hmm. world would be transformed in the next 20 years. The biggest thing that comes through in my coaching is trying to convince people to even begin to try. Mm -hmm. That's why I think he's a genius. Wonderful. You put it so well, man. You put it so well. Because, yeah, again, you know, like, I, I watch his interviews, I listen to his podcasts, even the old ones, and I'm like, I love it, you know, yeah. but, you know, I, I, he's a very polarizing figure, and I have a bunch of friends who very openly don't love it. <laughs> and I but, think a big um, part of it is most people don't have the psychological training to hear what people they don't agree with mean as opposed mm -hmm. to looking at specifically what they say. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that like one of the gifts of really learning how to listen is you can sometimes understand people better than they understand themselves. And then if you repeat back their idea to them better than they were able to articulate it, you have just transformed the conversation and they trust you. But what people tend to do is they look how to misunderstand so they can win their argument. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't produce conversations that produce fights. Right. And if you can listen to what he is trying to say, it's genius shit. If you only yeah. look to the sound bites that allow you to attack him, you're going to be able to attack him and you're not going to hear a fucking thing he has to say. Well, man, thank you so much for your time today. That was super insightful and I definitely got a lot out of it. I really appreciate it. It's been my honor, man. You asked some great questions and I really appreciate you doing this. All right, guys, that is Eric Godsey. Check him out. We'll have links down below. Thank you, Eric, for, for being a part. Thank you. It's my honor. <laughs>